Hello and welcome to episode what would be 11 of the MMA Rundown podcast. Uh, just a little bit of a heads up on that. So I did 10 podcasts back. I believe the most recent one was in 2017. Took a break from the channel, came back, and from then it's mostly just been videos where it's just been clips. So I've just been talking about singular topics and posting videos on that. I'll keep doing that. But right now I'm trying to bring back the podcast, so I'm going to be doing a podcast where I cover a lot of the same things that I cover in those videos, probably a little bit more in the podcast. I'll try to keep these a little bit shorter than the old ones were. Some of them ended up breaking the hour, hour 15 mark, so I'll try to keep this one a little bit shorter. So I'm going to talk about what's been going on both in the past week and then what's coming up uh, moving forward. So obviously in the past week we had the UFC on ESPN card that was in San Antonio, so I'll talk about some of the fights on that card, and then also talk about what's coming up at UFC 240 in, I believe it's in Edmonton, but it's definitely in Canada. So the first topic I want to get to is Leon Edwards, who won in the main event at San Antonio against Rafael Dos Anjos. And for him, that was a really big fight for him because it was the first time where he had a chance to fight against a former UFC champion. So he's had other big fights where he got to fight against Gunnar Nelson, who at least was a big name locally in the European market. He got to fight against Donald Cerrone in a main event, uh, although I believe that was a fight pass card, so the the reach on that might have, might not have been as good as you would think for a Donald Cerrone fight. Uh, but this was a real big opportunity for him, and not only did he win, but he won dominantly. And in doing so, he's worked his way up in the rankings all the way up to number four. So right now, he's not very far away from a title shot. Now, granted, he has it's had to take eight wins in a row to get to this point, which generally is a lot, especially if you're not a boring fighter. And I wouldn't say that he's a boring fighter at all, maybe personality-wise. He doesn't really give you a whole lot, but in terms of his actual ability in the fight, he, he's able to do a lot, both standing and on the ground, and has, has looked pretty impressive in doing so. So in the fight with RDA, what impressed me... I guess a lot impressed me. Probably what impressed me the most and what stood out the most was how he was able to dominate in the striking so much. RDA is very good all around, so to to dominate him in any one area is is pretty tough unless you're like a specialist in that area. So we've seen in the Usman and the Covington fights where you have guys who, in in Usman's case, he was a Division II national champion, um, went for the Olympic team. With Colby Covington, he was a Division I All-American. So you you have these guys who are wrestling specialists who, who find a way to make the wrestling dominate for them. So in in that way, it kind of made sense where you have a guy who's good at everything versus a guy who specializes in one, and the guy who specializes in, in one forces him into that area. Leon Edwards, you never really thought of as a guy who specialized in striking so much. Like he, He's a very good striker, but you never really thought of him as a specialist in the same way you would think of a guy like Darren Till or Wonderboy Thompson. So for him to dominate the way that he did was actually really impressive to me. And it puts him in a position where he, he's going to be pretty close to a title shot. Now, as far as the Walter White title picture goes right now, I don't think the timing's that great for him. You have Kamaru Usman, who's probably going to be ready by November. You have Colby Covington, who is going to be fighting Robbie Lawler. And if Covington wins that fight and he doesn't take too much damage, you'd have to think he's going to be next in line and probably will have that title fight in November. If he does take too much damage, you would have to think that Jorge Masvidal gets the title shot, even though the Masvidal-Edwards fight does make sense. So if we're going through scenarios here, let's just say Colby Covington, and, and this Covington fight really is going to determine where things go from there. I think however that fight ends is going to determine how the division moves forward. So let's just say that Covington wins, and he wins dominantly, and he's completely healthy. Covington's probably going to get the next title shot, at which point maybe then Mazadal Edwards makes sense as a, a title eliminator to kill time while those two are fighting. Um, if Covington wins, but he takes a lot of damage, which is a reasonable thing to assume fighting Robbie Lawler, typically you don't come out of a Robbie Lawler fight unscathed. Uh, in, in that case, you probably would think that Jorge Masvidal gets the title shot. At that point, Robbie Lawler would be coming off of two straight losses, so I don't know that a Lawler versus Edwards fight makes sense. Darren Till is talking about moving up to middleweight, so even though the Till-Edwards fight kind of makes sense, I don't know if that would make sense at Walter Wade if Till is not going to be hanging around in the weight class anymore. 
Um, so that kind of makes things difficult. And then if Robbie Lawler wins, then he'll be one and one in his last two with the most recent, or with that loss to Ben Askren, who was defeated by Jorge Masvidal. So you wouldn't think that Lawler would jump Masvidal at that point. So then in that case, Jorge Masvidal gets the title shot. So I think right now you just kind of have to see what happens with this Colby Covington versus Robbie Lawler fight and let the division play out since that, or play out after that. So I, I don't think that making matches for Leon Edwards would, would really be uh, worth doing right now up until that fight comes. Yes, the Jorge Masvidal fight makes sense, but to me, you have to wait and see what happens with this Colby Covington fight because if, if Covington wins and he's hurt, or even if Lawler wins dominantly and he's hurt, Masvidal is probably going to be the guy who steps in, so you got to have him ready, and you don't want him to have him booked with Leon Edwards in the meantime, just in case. Uh, next thing we want to talk about is Greg Hardy. So I did put up a video on Greg Hardy on my channel, so I was just talking about how he looked in his fight and if I think he's a contender or not. The main point I was getting at, and I, I have some video breakdowns in there, so it would be worth watching as well, is that Greg Hardy appears to be extremely strong, uh, but his technique really isn't that good, and it doesn't seem like it's gotten significantly better now. Granted, it, it's hard to say that because he hasn't really been able to show a whole lot in a whole lot of different positions. In his most recent fights, he had a guy in Smolyakov who just didn't want to engage with him at all. Juan Adams effectively just stopped engaging with him after he went for that single leg. So it's kind of hard to tell with Greg Hardy, but with his striking, we're still seeing him go for a lot of single shots. He, he's just throwing one punch at a time. His grappling... I mean, yes, it was effective in stopping the single leg, but it's not like what he was doing was that technically impressive. He just kind of sat sat in there, didn't really sprawl out. Now, granted, it's hard to blame him because what he did effectively worked and it got him to finish, but you would think in most situations if a guy's in on a single leg, you want to sprawl out, you want to circle, and he just kind of stayed there and just threw a bunch of punches. And fortunately for him, Juan Adams didn't want to adjust for that and try to finish a takedown off of that, so he got away with it. But you'd figure with a more skilled fighter, that'd be an issue for him. So for Greg Hardy... Yes, he's getting some impressive wins. Yes, he's using his athleticism to his advantage. But to me, there's, there's going to come a point where that athleticism doesn't make up for the massive skill differential, and that skill differential still seems to be there, so I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense to force him into the top 15 right now. And I think it's worth mentioning, if you're the UFC, you, you got to figure out what your strategy is going to be with Greg Hardy. So to me, where Greg Hardy makes the most sense from a business standpoint is that he's the kind of guy who, no matter what he does at this point, People are going to hate him, and you, you could argue rightfully so if you're a guy who... I, I don't know that he was effectively convicted of domestic violence, but I think it's pretty much understood that he, he was guilty of it, or he at least did the act. So people are going to dislike him for that, and that's a reasonable reason to dislike him. So I think a lot of people, whenever Greg Hardy fights, they're going to want to tune in just because they want to see him get his ass whipped. So if you're the UFC, the, the best case scenario is that he just keeps winning, people get angrier and angrier... And then every fight you start to sell is, oh, maybe this is going to be the guy who beats his ass. And everyone's like, okay, okay, well, let's tune in. I want to see Greg Hardy get his ass beat. And then maybe Hardy wins that fight just barely. Okay, fine. I mean, the next guy's going to beat his ass. And you just want to keep climbing up that way. So I think with Hardy, you want to have a slow build. And you don't want to put him in a position where he's going to he's going to take that beating too soon. Because I have a feeling that once he does take his first really bad beating in the UFC, his drawing power is going to be diminished quite a bit. Because I think that's really what everyone wants to see. And once it happens, I mean, sure, maybe some people will want to see it again. But... I think everyone right now is just waiting on that first real bad beating just to be like, hi, this is Karma, it finally caught up to you. So for a next fight for him, I wouldn't look at the top 15 guys. I'd look at, there are three types of guys you'd look at. So you could look at a guy who would be making their UFC debut, so a guy that you can pluck off the contender series. You could look at a guy sort of like Smolyakov where they were a former UFC heavyweight, they got cut, but then you're like, hey, let's just bring you back to fight Greg Hardy, and if you win, then we can keep you around. So that's what they did with Smolyakov. I guess you could take a guy like Surreal Asker and do a similar thing like that with him. 
Uh, and then the other option would be to take a guy who's in the UFC right now and is on a pretty bad losing streak, so maybe like a junior Albini. Now, granted, Albini might be a pretty tough matchup for him. I don't think Albini would be able to take him down, but Albini would have a pretty big advantage on the feet in terms of technical boxing. So you'd have to question, do you think Albini's chin is going to be able to hold up to Hardy? And if not, then that'd be a big win for him. But there's a chance that that fight goes really wrong and Albini just beats the shit out of Greg Hardy. And if you're the UFC, I don't know if that's what you want right now at this point. So as far as next matchups go, again, I think you're still trying to build him right now. You're not trying to rush him in. Um, But like I mentioned, from a striking standpoint, it still keeps his hand low, kind of stiff. Uh, Throws single strikes at a time, doesn't really throw his combinations. We saw in the grappling in the Alan Crowder fight that that was really bad, especially when he was on his back. If he just kept his guard open and wasn't doing anything active, just kind of laid there and got his guard passed because he really wasn't doing anything to maintain it. So to assume that that got significantly better in six months, it's not a safe assumption, especially since he had two years to get to that point and didn't seem to make a whole ton of progress in those two years between when he started and when he had that Alan Crowder fight. So I think from a technical standpoint, he's pretty far behind. But if you're the UFC, there, there is an opportunity to make a lot of money from people who just hate watching Greg Hardy and... You don't want to rush him too soon where they get what they want and they don't want to see any more of it. Uh, next thing to talk about would be John Jones and his legal troubles. So there is a very odd case that came up. So I'll just read through the story that was put up by Mark Ramondi on ESPN just to go off of the official stuff and then make my comments on that. So he says, UFC John champion John Jones is facing a battery charge stemming from an alleged April incident in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, Jones, who holds the light heavyweight title, is accused of slapping a cocktail waitress in her genitalia area, or genital area, and that would be the vagina, not the ass, in case you were wondering, because the more I dug into this, apparently that's what the claim was. Uh, pulling her down to his lap and kissing her neck, according to criminal summons obtained by ESPN from the Albuquerque Police Department. Uh, KRQE television in Albuquerque was the first to report the news. Uh, the woman told Albuquerque police that Jones put her in a chokehold and picked her up off the ground for the news station. When she asked Jones to stop, she said Jones continued touching her until he decided to leave. Uh, the charge was listed in court records as a petty misdemeanor, and a conviction can carry jail, can still carry jail time. So what's odd to me about this is that, in theory, if you've got a professional fighter who's got a pretty bad criminal record who's choking waitresses at strip clubs, for the police department to just kind of let it sit there and not do anything about it and have the issue be that he was like $300 behind on, on bond. To me, that seems kind of odd. It also seems like at a strip club, you would typically have cameras all over the place. So you would either know this happened or know that it didn't happen just by going back to the footage. So it's unclear whether or not they've even looked at the footage at this point. If they have, then if they haven't, it is what she described. Then why was Jones not arrested before? And he really isn't even arrested now. Uh, if they saw it and it's not what she described, why is Jones really in any trouble at this point? Like, what's, what's really going on with it? From Jones's standpoint, he tweeted that this really isn't that big of a deal. And it's going to be taken care of. I think from a legal standpoint, it probably isn't going to end up being that big of a deal for it to seem to be so minor at this point. It only just come up now when this happened back in April. That, that would indicate to me that in all likelihood, Jones isn't really going to face too much criminal trouble from this. Uh, as far as his career goes, I don't know if this is really going to tie him up and make it hard for him to fight again. So I think if he wants to fight in December, he's going to be able to fight in December. This isn't going to stop him from doing it. Um, the, the one issue maybe would be that if he's going to strip clubs and he's got a fiancé back at home and he's got kids and he's supposed to be the performed John, then th- that could be an issue in his personal life. But I feel like these types of issues have been very common for him. So I, I think everyone just kind of like knows what's, what they're dealing with at this point. So to me, it, it, it's sort of like a funny story in that there's this storyline where it's like John Jones is always fucking up and, oh, hey, look, here's John Jones fucking up again. Um, 
typically if you're on straight and narrow, these types of charges aren't going to come at you in the first place, but it doesn't seem like there's going to be a whole lot to come out of this. Hopefully it's the last that we hear of John Jones having trouble with the law. I don't know that it, that it will be. But to me, this this really isn't that major of a story. Uh, I, I think more so the headline of John Jones in trouble for alleged assault on stripper. It, it, it makes a great headline, but when you dig into it a little bit more, there just doesn't seem to be a whole lot of substance to it. Uh, next story to talk about is Chris Weidman versus Dominic Reyes. So that's a fight that was just scheduled for October in Boston. So it's Chris Weidman, Chris Weidman's first fight up weight at 205 against Dom Reyes, who is a guy who's very close to earning a title shot. He did have that recent fight with Vulcan Ozdemir where he was given the split decision. But I think a lot of people, myself included, thought that Ozdemir had won that fight. So for Reyes, this is an opportunity to to really prove, prove that he belongs in the top of the division. One of the interesting things to me is that at 205 and at 265 in the UFC right now, the divisions are extremely weak. We're seeing a lot of guys make their way to the top who either just weren't all that successful in lower divisions or who just don't have very high-level skill sets. I, I mention this a lot with heavyweight, where you see guys like Francis Ngannou, who from a technical standpoint isn't all that impressive. Uh, Derek Lewis earning a title shot again. Imagine someone with Derek Lewis's technique earning a title shot at lightweight. Like It's a hilarious thought. Uh, but then you look at 205, the most recent title challengers are both guys who struggle to break past like the top 12 of middleweight. They move up a weight, and now all of a sudden they're, they're title challengers and legit challengers for John Jones. And here we have Chris Weidman, a guy who is much higher ranked at middleweight, uh, a former champion who's looking to make the move up. Now we also had Luke Rockhold do that as well. Uh, but, but as I mentioned in the preview video for the Rockhold fight, Rockhold likes to keep his hands down a lot. It's a huge issue for him, and it, it came back to cost him against Jan Blachowicz. Although he did have some decent-looking moments in that fight, but again, you, you can't get away with leaving that lead hand low all, the entire time. People are going to catch up to it, and his last two opponents had caught onto it and made adjustments to it and knocked him out, and so did Blahovic. But I think with Rockhold, with Rockhold, there was a very clear opening for how to beat him. With Chris Wyman, I don't know if that's the case. Wyman's issues sometimes seem to be that he's ahead on fight, ahead in fights, and then makes mental mistakes in the third round. So he was ahead on Yoel Romero. Or at least I felt that he was winning that fight before he caught that flying knee appeared that he was ahead on Jacare Souza before he got knocked out by Jacare. So for Weidman, it's one of those things where if he can finish you early, uh, he seems to be good, but at least recently, late in fights, he's he's had um, bigger issues. Reyes, at least, he's a bit of an early finisher too, and late in fights, I mean, I guess in the Vulcan Ozdemir fight, it's not like he was super impressive late in that fight. So it's hard to say what to make of this, this fight here. I believe it will be a three-round fight, not a five-round fight. That would make a difference if it is a five-round fight. That could potentially help Reyes a little bit more, but to me, from a matchup standpoint, Chris Weidman, very skilled fighter, uh, definitely has the skills to be in title contention, both at 185 and even 205. Uh, for him, it's been some mental things of late. I think it, it, it's tough to predict fights when when mental issues are there because you, you, tend, you tend to just look at skills. From a skill standpoint, Weidman should have a huge advantage here, um, but from the mental aspect, we'll see how that plays out, but I think Chris Weidman should be able to get the win there and in doing so, probably be pretty close to earning a way to a title shot, especially when John Jones is fighting three times a year and just ripping through contenders the way he is. Another thing to talk about is a bit of a more unfortunate story from the boxing world. So this came from a top rank event on Friday or last Friday. So a boxer, a Russian boxer by the name of Maxim Dadashev, uh, died from injury suffered in a fight. Uh, so just to read a little bit on that story, so it says junior welterweight Maxim Dadashev died Tuesday morning as a result of brain injury suffered during an 11th round knockout loss to Subriel Matias um, on Friday night at the MGM National Harbor in Oaks on Hill, Maryland. Uh, he was 28. 
Uh, they're saying his strength and conditioning coach and his trainer, Buddy McGurk, confirmed his death. Uh, strength and conditioning coach uh, was with him at the hospital since he was taken there after the fight. Uh, the trainer was saying, it just makes you realize what type of sport we're in, man. Uh, he did everything right in training. No problems, no nothing. My mind is like, really running crazy right now. Like, what could have what could have I done differently? At the end of the day, everything was fine in training. He seemed okay. He was ready, but it's the sport we're in. It just takes one punch, man. Um, and then a hospital spokesman issued a statement on behalf of his widow. Uh, they're saying it's with great sadness that she confirmed the passing of her husband, Maxime. Uh, he was a kind person who fought to the very end. Our son will continue to be raised to be a great man like his father. Lastly, I would like to thank everyone that cared for Maxim during his final days. I ask that everyone please respect our privacy during this very difficult time. So, it, it's a really tough story here. Um, from my understanding, it, it, it's hard to say that anything was really done wrong on fight night. Like, he, he wasn't winning the fight. Um, his trainer did stop the fight in the 11th round when the referee didn't stop it. It's not as though there was ever a moment where the referee, like, could have had an obvious stoppage and they didn't make the stoppage. It, it sort of speaks to some of the issues with boxing. It's it's kind of unclear why boxing ne fights need to be as long as they are. We're talking about fights where if you're going 12 rounds, these are 12 three-minute rounds, it's effectively, it, it's the 12 minutes plus you have the minute breaks in between, so we're talking about a 48-minute period. So you could get hit hard in the first round, kind of have your brain rattled and have to fight, or at least like be in a engagement for the next like 45 minutes after that, and that's that's sort of like a risky aspect of the sport of boxing. It's also kind of weird that in boxing you can be in a position where you're basically knocked unconscious and give you 10 seconds to kind of wake up and get back to. One of the nice things about MMA is that if you get someone who's knocked down, um, if they're out of it, then they're, they're pretty much going to get finished right away. So you don't have these guys who are coming back from these concussions then having to fight again and taking even more blows and more blows and more blows. And as a result, we haven't really had this high-profile death in MMA, whereas in boxing, here's another one. And, I mean, these happen, it's not like they happen all the time, but they, they happen far too often, obviously. And it's unfortunate that this one happened right here. It sucks to hear that he had a wife and kids who, or at least a wife and a kid, I don't know if it was multiple kids, but either way, it's just a really sad scenario. It's unfortunate that it happened this way. I think for boxing, you, you know, maybe you try to look at different ways to prevent this from happening in the, in the future. I guess in this case you could say if the fights weren't weren't 12 rounds, if they were like five rounds or seven rounds instead of then maybe in this case Maxim would still be alive. There are some other cases of boxing fights that go like one or two rounds and the guy dies, so it's not as though the rounds are the specific issue that are at play every time someone dies from boxing. But it, it feels like there are a lot of changes that could be made in boxing to make the sport a little bit safer for fighters. I think there's some cultural issues as well where there's this idea that if you like decide that you don't want to fight anymore that like you've essentially quit or you've like put a black mark on your career it's stupid it, it, this is a sport if, if you realize that you're playing a sport and the person's just better than you just to say okay look you got me here maybe i'll let, let me just recoup come back and try to get you another time i don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with that especially in boxing where when you're losing it's not just like if you're playing one-on-one -on -one with someone they're up like 20 to 5 on you where it's just like, oh, well, they're just going to score more points. If if you're losing that badly in boxing, you're, you're still going to take a lot of damage. So this cultural aspect of the sport where a fighter having to give up is like this sort of like scarlet letter in their career, I don't know that that's really a good thing. I think that might have to change. Um, it, it's good that his coach at least stepped in and threw in the towel and didn't really give him the option to say, no, I'm going to keep fighting. He was just like, look, man, you, you, you got to stop. We're taking you out of this. But again, that, that was his coach doing the right thing, and unfortunately, even though he did the right thing, it still wasn't enough. So ho hopefully from this, from the boxing side of it, they can at least learn a couple things and maybe change some things about their culture that can prevent things like this happening in the future. 
as far as MMA goes, I think this sort of highlights what's nice about MMA and that once someone does get knocked down, you, you've really got to prove that you can defend yourself right away, otherwise they're going to stop the fight. And I think that's a big reason why we haven't really seen anywhere near the amount of deaths in MMA that we see in boxing. Um, so I guess to, to go from a sad story like that into something a little bit more positive, I'm just going to talk about some of the fights coming up at UFC 240. So the main event of that card will be Frankie Edgar versus Max Holloway. This is a fight where it seems like, in theory, when it was booked, the idea was that Max Holloway's probably going to win this fight pretty easy. Uh, he's not going to take a lot of damage, and then he'll be ready for what now appears to be October to fight Alex Volkanovski in Australia. That would probably be the best-case scenario for the UFC. I think that's what they're hoping for. Um, or I guess maybe Frank Yeager just gets a win in a Holloway's injured, and you can't run it back right away. Uh, but you, you'd want to have Volkanovski on that card in October. But that would be their hope. As far as this fight actually goes, I, I think Holloway is the favorite for good reason, but there's also reason to believe that Frankie Edgar has a real chance in this. One of the things that really stands out to me about Frankie Edgar that always impressed me was that he had this one fight against Charles Oliveira, and Oliveira has just a disgustingly good offensive guard off of his back. And most guys who fight him do everything they can to avoid it. Edgar would take him down and just like get in that guard and just like pound him out through that guard and... For, for him to feel that comfortable with a guy like Charles Oliveira, you'd have to imagine that in a fight with Max Holloway, who's who's a good grappler. He's a four-strike purple belt. He's very close to earning his brown belt. Um, has some good chokes. Definitely uses his length to his advantage. Um, but you'd have to figure if that fight goes to the ground, Frankie Edgar is going to be very dominant there. Edgar also has a black belt on top of that. Um, as far as the boxing goes, Edgar would be at a bit of a disadvantage there, but one of the things that interests me about Max Holloway is that he is a very smart fighter and that oftentimes he'll start pretty slow, but he'll make his reads, and then as the fight goes on, then he starts to really, like, like once he has a fi- an opponent figured out, then he's really able to start teeing off on him. With a guy like Edgar, if Edgar is able to mix in his takedowns, especially early, and sort of delay that process of Holloway being able to get a read on him, a guy like Holloway who might lose the first round or a second round and then start coming on late, if you sort of delay that process of him catching on, that that can definitely be, be beneficial to you. If you think about the old Holloway fight versus Conor McGregor, McGregor dominated in the first round on the feet, and the second round was a little bit closer, and in the third round it was even closer than that, where just over time Holloway just kept getting a beat on him and getting a beat on him. But being able to throw in those takedowns, I think it's going to be an advantage to him. Holloway is very good at defending along the fence, um, but one of the things that's interesting about Edgar is that Edgar is very good about finishing in the open, so he doesn't necessarily have to like run you up against the fence and then try to finish from there. So it'll be interesting to see if Edgar is going to be effective in actually closing the distance and getting Holloway down. If he can do that, uh, this could be a really bad night for Max Holloway. Do I think that's going to happen? Probably not. I think Holloway's going to be effective at keeping the range and stuffing some early takedowns from Edgar and at least outpointing him. If he doesn't outpoint him early, definitely be able to outpoint him late. And if he's not able to finish him, at least be able to earn decision, at least winning rounds three, three through five. Uh, I figure he'd probably have a beat on him by round two as well, but this is definitely a fight worth watching. This isn't something just to look past and be like, okay, whatever, Max Holloway's going to win, and then he'll move on to fight Volkanovski. There's, there are some interesting storylines in this fight from a technical standpoint, and I'm definitely eager to see it. In the co-main event, you have Felicia Spencer versus Chris Cyborg. This is a fight where Felicia Spencer sort of got pushed in pretty quickly. She was the Invicta, type, Invicta champion, came to the UFC, got a win over Megan Anderson, and now, because 145 is not really much of a division, they only have a few people in it, the fight that made the most sense apparently was Cyborg, although I don't think Felicia Spencer's ready for it. From an odd standpoint, I think Cyborg's like a minus 670 favorite or something to that effect. Um, even though she's a pretty big favorite, I'd probably still take action on it. I think Spencer's a little bit overrated in here. Uh, she She's known for having a good background in Taekwondo um, and then also being a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but if you're looking at 
how she fights. Her her boxing is not very good. She's very stiff and robotic, um, and, and that would be an issue fighting up fighting against someone like Cyborg. She she has some good kicks, but it's not like those kicks are like knocking people out. Like it's more just sort of like surprising people from the angles that she's hitting her kicks at. Uh, her her jiu-jitsu is pretty good. There are a, co- a couple little holes you'll notice when you watch her fight. It's nothing too major. Uh, but Cyborg, I believe, was a Pro Belt World Champion like seven years ago, and I don't know where where she's at from a belt standpoint right now, but if this fight does go to the mat, even if Spencer has the edge there, and I don't know that she would, it wouldn't be enough where she would just like dominate and get to a finish really quickly. Like Cyborg can definitely defend herself there. So to me, I think Cyborg's boxing is going to make the difference here, and then she's going to light up Felicia Spencer and get the win. Um, if she does that, then that would then make her a free agent, at which point the UFC would probably give her a decent offer to fight Amanda Nunes in a rematch. Um, or she could just fight somewhere else. We'll see what happens there. But at least for this fight, I think Chris Cyborg, being the favorite that she is, that makes sense. And I, I don't really see much of a path to victory for Felicia Spencer. Uh, a couple quick things just to talk about um, before I end the show here. So one little piece of news is that Brendan Lugnane, who was infamously on the episode of Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender Series where he had a really tough fight with Bill Algio, and in the final 10 seconds of the third round, when he had Algio hurt, he decided to shoot for a double leg. And that decision really pissed off Dana White. Dana was saying, hey, I, I want finishers here. I want killers. I don't want people who are just going to shoot for the double leg and try to try to win win on points or win rounds that way. And a lot of people were upset about it. They felt like Lugnane deserves to be in the UFC, that he's a UFC caliber fighter. And it was a bad decision for them not to sign him. Well, not only did they not sign him, but now it looks like he's got scooped up by someone else, That someone else being the PFL. Uh, to me, I, I didn't do a video on this when it happened. I probably should have. I think there's there's some ways to look at it. So first off, if you're asking the question, is Brandon Lugnane a UFC caliber fighter? I would say yes. He, he is a UFC caliber featherweight. Uh, but the next question would be, what exactly does the UFC look for when they're doing this contender series? And to me, I, I think you're looking for a couple of things. You're either looking for someone who can actually make their way up the rankings and really challenge for a title. You're looking for someone who's at least going to be exciting if they're not going to make it all the way up. And what I saw in that Lugnane Algeo fight is that, yes, Lugnane's a very good fighter. I don't see him being in the top 15 right now. I don't know that he ever really would get to the point where he is a top 15 UFC fighter. So at least from the like from the winning architecture standpoint, it, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot there, or at least a, a very high ceiling there. Um, from an excitement standpoint, it, it's not that it wasn't an exciting fight, but I get the idea that if your thought process goes to, let me just get a takedown in a round that I've already done enough to win, just so I can like lock up that round, like it, it's not just that he went for the double leg. It's not the idea that he wrestled, but it's more so like the thought process of I'm going to do this because I know it scores points and I want to score points here. Where you're sort of like showing a little bit like from a deeper level that you're viewing the fight not as like let me get this guy out of here, but let me let me find a way to win. It's not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but if you're the UFC and you're trying to make a determination of we want fighters who are either going to be title contenders or be guys who if they're not going to be title contenders they'll at least be guys who people want to watch. That sort of decision isn't necessarily one that's common among fighters who you would think are fighters you want to watch. Um, and from what we saw in that fight, the fight where he got his nose busted up, um, took a lot of rough shots, didn't really... Though he was able to get Algio down and get in some good positions on the ground, he didn't really seem like he was comfortable attacking and trying to finish there. So from that standpoint, like, well, look, this guy doesn't seem like he would be the most exciting fighter to to fill out a spot on the undercard doesn't seem like he's at a level where he's going to challenge for a title and take a spot on the main card, so where exactly do we put him right now? Um, I, I kind of get why they made that decision.
But like I said before, that being said, is he like one of the best 50 featherweights in the world right now? I would say yes. Um, but is he a guy who's going to break into the top 15? I don't know about that. And for that reason, you kind of hope that they have a little something extra that at least makes him worth it. And apparently Dana White didn't see that. So he's in the PFL now. He'll have a chance to be in a situation where they don't really care as much about fighters promoting their fights. It's more so, hey, just get you in this competitive architecture and see where you can go from there. You know, maybe for him this is good. Maybe if he's as good as he thinks that he is, he'll win a he'll win a tournament and or he'll win the season, um, win the finals tournament after that and make a bunch of money. And maybe after doing so, then the UFC would want to scoop him up at that point. But to me, this isn't that crazy of a story. It's not that sad of a story. It just is what it is. Uh, a couple other things in the world of wrestling, Artur Tamezov, who I believe is from Uzbekistan, was the gold medalist at heavyweight in 2012. He has been popped retroactively for steroids, so his gold medal has been stripped. That means that one of the guys he beat in the semis, Tervel Delagnev of the USA, um, is now a bronze medalist. So I guess congratulations to Tervel for now being an Olympic medalist when he didn't think he would be that year. Uh, kind of sucks that you have someone win an Olympic gold and come back and find this out this this far down the road, but. I guess better late than never in that case. I, I also had that video that I put up about Olympic wrestling and why the Olympics are bad for wrestling. It's not exactly... It doesn't exactly deal with steroids so much. More so just about like the competitive architecture, but I think that's a video we're checking out if you haven't already. Uh, and the last thing to talk about, I did a video on this. It'll be a little bit more relevant in a couple of weeks when the UFC Uruguay fight card is coming up, but Hidolfo Vieira will be de- debuting in there. Hidolfo Vieira is a four-time... IB, actually, five-time IBJJF champion in the Gi... 2015 ADCC champion, uh, just had a match against the 2018 world champion in the Gi back in 2018 and beat him in the year that he won his title. So he's still top of the food chain for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. We've had guys like Damian Maia and Jacare Souza come into the sport who have sort of similar credentials and they've been fairly successful. Uh, Hadolfo's coming in, uh, I believe he's at 29 years old right now. So there's some potential where maybe he can grow into being the next generation of a Jacare or something like that. He's coming in at middleweight. Uh, so Definitely keep your eye out for that. I'll, I'll get a little bit more in-depth on that as that fight comes up, but that was just something I wanted to tease um, before it happens. So that was this week's episode. This is ep- Again, this is episode 11 of the MMA Rundown. I'm going to try to do these podcasts on a weekly basis again. Uh, again, like I said before, I'm going to try to keep them a little bit shorter than the older ones that I had done before. Um, but I would say subscribe, subscribe to my YouTube channel. I get some clips that are separate from the podcast. I'll also put the podcast up on the YouTube channel. Um, and... For that, just say, have to say uh, UFC 240 is coming up this weekend. Look forward to that main event with Holloway and Edgar. Even if Holloway should be the favorite, I think there's it, it's definitely worth taking your time, taking your Saturday and watching that fight. And It'll be interesting to see what happens from there, not just from a standpoint of who wins, but how, how does the winner feel coming out? Are they going to be able to put that Volkanovski fight t- together in Australia afterwards? Uh, a lot of good storylines to make after that. So definitely stay tuned uh, and enjoy the fights.